Welcome to Getting Goosebumps, The Power of Storytelling, the weekly podcast helping you to craft stories that inspire, entertain, and convince. Each week, listen to leading industry experts from top marketers and CEOs to producers and writers from the entertainment industry. Learn how to elevate your brand message and spare your audience into action. In this week's Getting Goosebumps, I have an incredible discussion with the great Roger Shulman. Roger has been a working screenwriter for over 30 years, and he co-wrote one of my family's favourite films, Shrek, which has won a British Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay and was nominated for an Oscar. He co-wrote the animated feature Balto for executive producer Steven Spielberg, as well as writing Mulan 2 and The Jungle Book 2 for Disney. Roger's also worked extensively as a producer and writer for television. He's currently co-writing a secret pilot for HBO with Tom Hanks, which we hear a little bit about. And with a career like that, you know this is going to be a great listen. So sit back and relax. Enjoy the wisdom of Roger Shulman. Well, hello and welcome to another show, everybody. Uh, This week, I am really pleased to be talking to Roger Shulman. Um, Roger needs no introduction other than to say... Um, Roger co-wrote Shrek, which as soon as as soon as uh, I saw that, I just thought, "Wow, does it ever get any better than that?" But it does. I'm sure we'll dig into that. Um, but but Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, I've got to ask you, um, Roger. Give us just a potted sort of history of your um, your long acclaimed. Um, screenwriting career and then and then we can jump into some really good stuff that you're up to um currently okay um let's see um it's i used to be a journalist many uh centuries ago (laughs) and um i did an article in which i profiled uh, the writer and comedian and actor steve martin and i had a dream a dream to uh, to write comedy and i had been doing it you know, secretively. And then when the article came out and he enjoyed it, I said, you know, I also write comedy. And he said, yes, I know. Hang on, hang on, hang uh, on. When the yeah. article came out and Steve Martin liked it. Yes. How did, how did that happen? How the hell did you find out that Steve Martin liked it? It was about him. So, and he just got in touch and told you he liked it? Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, did, not... I, did, did I leave out the part? Did I leave out the part where I said it was about him? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, Did I? I see. The thing is, Roger. See, in most people's lives, like I could write about Steve Martin tomorrow. <laughs> that doesn't mean oh, that I Steve see. Martin re- reaches out and says, "Hey, I see what you did there." Wow. So that's cool. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, it, it's a fabulous story. It is. It's a dream break. Amazing. Um, and uh, the break hasn't come yet uh, in my story, but that's what started it. The break was when. Uh, he said, well, uh, I'm putting together a television show. I'm not going to be in it, but I'm creating it and, you know, sort of audition for it. And uh, I thought it over, uh, you know. It, for about two seconds. No, that's way too long. <laughs> and, and I said yes. And there are all kinds of lovely details inside the story, but yeah. I won't, I won't uh, take up your time with that. You know, uh, suffice to say that. I pitched some ideas to his people, and he liked them, and he hired me, and 
a dream had come true in that I started writing in, in television. Um, and that, those, that was situation comedy. And yeah. I stayed with that for some years. I'm, I'm, I'm still with it, actually. But along the way, I got the chance to write some television animation. Mm-hmm. And then that uh, transitioned over to feature animation, um, some direct-to-video and some theatrical. Uh-huh. I got to do a, um, a movie called Balto um, for Steven Spielberg, which is based on a true story. And um, turned out, I thought, very well. And it was actually, this is just a, a bit of trivia, it was the last thing that his emblemation company did oh, wow. when he was still, that was before DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. So it was the last thing that emblemation did um, right before DreamWorks. Uh, so um, that you know, was received very well. And I actually still hear from fans of that movie today. It is kind of an evergreen. (laughs) And I did some more projects and then I got the chance to write on Shrek because, you know, it's never just one thing. It's always some kind of synchronicity. And in this case, there was some tragedy involved in that Chris Farley. Do you remember him? I don't. I don't. Okay, Chris Farley made a number of very funny movies that you can look up, and he was a regular on Saturday Night Live. He was okay. a big guy, mm-hmm. and he he died uh, an untimely death, and he had been recording the voice of Shrek for a long time. Right, and they knew that they would no longer have him, and it gave the studio an opportunity to sort of shift direction. Shrek was going to be pretty much kind of a lighthearted drama. That's what DreamWorks was doing. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make it a comedy. Mm -hmm. So um, I was hired to help bring, you know, funniness to it. But what I ended up doing was spending about two and a half years there just rewriting it from top to bottom. Wow. Wow. Along along with the help of um, um, a couple of other really talented writers. And, you know, it changed almost completely. And um, it was obvious as we were doing it that there was some kind of synchronicity going on. Mm -hmm. It was just all falling into place. It felt like it had its own soul. And um, we thought it was going to be very good. But we had no idea, I would say. Not that I can speak for everybody else involved with the movie. But I, I think it's safe to say none of us expected what would happen in terms of reaction until the day that I saw the first screening and there was a large audience. Right. And when it was over, friends of mine were looking at me differently. They, so their eyes were a little bit wide. <laughs> They're like, wow, you did that? How on earth did you do that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, it yeah, was a phenomenon actually, when it came out. I mean, it won a BAFTA. You just missed out on a, on an Oscar, right? I mean, you know, and it, yes. Yes, I was. And, you know, I prefer to think of it as having won a nomination as and not having just missed out on an Oscar. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, for me, it was it was it was groundbreaking, wasn't it? You know, and and then I think um, since since Shrek, there was a a sort of raft of animations um, that came out. And but for me, it was Shrek had that was the first um, animation that I saw that had this one story for adults and mm-hmm. also dealing with with uh, you know obviously a younger audience 
how how did you go about writing with such sort of subtext or being able to have that sort of double narrative going on was it just did you just focus on comedy for adults um knowing that kids would just laugh along or how, how do you approach that no it was um everything had to be as conscious as possible yeah. uh naturally there's always a, there's always an unconscious undercurrent in any movie that even the creators of the movie will never be aware of until it's pointed out to them. But mm. everything that you see in the movie in terms of what you're referring to was conscious. Yep. A, a, decision, a decision was made that if, that if we were going to make any kind of actual mark on the map, we had to do something that separated us from Disney. Yeah, no, it, it certainly did that. You know, But I think yeah. whilst watching it, I was, I was acutely aware that it was – it was funny and you're being swept away by the, by the story, but you're, I was also consciously aware of just how clever it was. Yes. You know, and I think, um, that's certainly why it sticks in, in my mind and actually makes it sort of, you know, and even now my son of five watches it, just thinks it's hilarious and I can sit there and watch it again and again. It's definitely one of those movies. Um, thank you. I can't, um, I can, I can only imagine that you wouldn't know how successful it would be because, it it was it was groundbreaking, right? I mean, that's, that's fair to say. Would would you would you agree? I'm sure you would. Yes, uh, I don't necessarily take uh, much credit for that because it was groundbreaking in several different ways at once. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you hadn't watched it and thought it was the most clever thing you had seen for adults that was animated you would have had to factually say, well, it's groundbreaking because I've never seen an animated movie that has a poster up that has the name of the cast at the top. Yeah, um, it was always just Disney presents and this, and, and this is a dream world in which we will immerse you. And the DreamWorks way that they started and what we tried to do with Shrek was this is a movie it just happens to be animated mm-hmm. because um, because uh, that's what we do. And um, uh, it had to have it had to fulfill, you know, all of the elements that any movie would. And part of that, according to the management, which is to their credit, was star power. So some people may have gone to see the movie because, oh, my God, John Lithgow, I'd like to see him in something like this. <laughs> or maybe they never bought maybe they never sold a ticket because of it. But it changed the tone and timber of those kinds of movies. And I defy you to find a high budget animated film today that doesn't mention any of the cast. Yeah. Uh, the only possible exception would be a Toy Story movie because you already know the cast. Yeah. Uh, and that changed things. It made it more adult. You know, certainly having their names up on posters wasn't for the children. Yep. Um, and then there was risk-taking. You know, uh, there were lots of things we wanted to do as writers and artists, but you have to get those things signed off on. Yeah. And to Jeffrey Katzenberg's credit, he said, let's do it. <laughs> you know, let's, <laughs> this will be a magnificent burning crash like the Hindenburg, or it will be amazing. Yeah, I and the movie industry is relatively risk averse, right? So that's you know, that's not something to be taken lightly either, I, I guess, because to do something for the first time is a massive risk. And like you say, that it could have crashed and burned, I, I suppose. Yeah, I would remove relatively from your description. I don't think. The, <laughs> yeah, I don't think, think anything movie. can relatively crash and burn, kind of. Yeah, okay. You know, and, and I'm and I'm not, you know, I'm not lampooning. I'm I, I, the reason I say it is because if you think about it for a minute, 
Um, just being creative is risky because it means by definition that you're being original. That, that, that goes without saying. As soon as you make a movie, yep. you're taking a huge risk. Yep. And, so, and so the product and the industry itself is risky, and that drives the executives nuts. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. If we, were making, if we were making soup, if we were Campbell's and we were making tomato soup – um, then you could say, well, you know, the major risk is that we might not grow as fast as we want to, or there might be competition from other kinds of soup, or maybe people's taste for, t- for tomato will, uh, will fade. But it's not something like they sit around in the conference room at Campbell's and say, but soup? I mean, should we really be making soup? How, how, where do we think we get off making soup? It's, totally. No, I, not, yeah. And but they do that every day in this business. They say, you know, let's let's make a piece of art and have people pay money to see it. And it had better make four hundred million dollars or we're in the red. It's an amazingly risky business. And yeah. as conglomerates have collected movie studios like Domino's, mm-hmm. it's gotten more and more risk averse because the people who make soup now also make movies. <laughs> It's no, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, I guess there was a lot of sort of planets aligning and, you know, a a bit of luck involved and certainly a lot of bravery. But so looking back on that, you know, when that came out and your friends were looking at you differently, um, watching that movie um, in its entirety, what did you reflect on that made you a better writer having experienced the process of Shrek? I think if I had to say one thing, it would be courage because there was a lot of fear on my part as we were writing things. And there was one thing in particular um, that I won't go into in great detail, but that I I fought for. And please keep in mind, I'm just a writer on an animated movie. I don't have a title. I don't have any actual, you know – uh, juice, uh, you know, as far as the movie business is concerned, with very few exceptions, writers are fungible. You know, they're they're people. You know, I've, they've been referred to as monkeys with typewriters and worse. Do you, do you think that's and, still true? Because, you know, I, I'm I'm starting to see the that equity rise. You know, just from where I'm sat. I mean, surely you must be feeling that now, right? Well, um, yes and no. There is a definite pantheon of a-list writers now uh they still can't really get movies made on their own but what they say is listened to and what they what and their name does bring some cachet but we're talking about maybe 0.0001 percent of the writers who are actually making a living Mm -hmm. at screenwriting and that doesn't include the thousands and thousands of people who are not making a living at screenwriting but still but still consider themselves to be writers. And I can tell you um, nine-tenths of what gets written never even makes it to the screen, and that's where most of the pain occurs. Yeah. If you have written something that's actually in production, you have already won. Even if every critic in the world despises it, and God forbid, even if it flops financially, you still got a movie made. That's a miracle. Yeah, I, and, I, I, totally, I totally agree with that. 
you know i mean to yeah. see to see your work on the big screen is just i can't imagine what that feels like let alone if you knock one out of the park with something like shrek but right. but roger you know, i feel particularly lucky to be talking to you today because um you know there's a couple of things uh keeping you busy at the moment um one of the things is uh, you're co-writing something with Tom Hanks, which we'll get to in a second. Um, you know, I can't wait to hear what what that experience is, is, is like. But also, you're you're now turning your attentions to um, coaching uh, other people, giving giving back, uh, helping people become better screenwriters, but also taking the essence of of your writing career into the business world, um, right? Which is fantastic news for me certainly on this podcast in your own words um what do you think translates particularly well what are the sort of universal truths that sort of span um entertainment right across to business communications that's a great question um it's very close to my heart uh i know that human beings are more than just natural storytellers we are actually hardwired uh-huh. for narrative yeah. um, the original purpose to the extent that we know and can understand it the original purpose of storytelling was to um, create community mm-hmm. create bonds between human beings and yeah. to save lives mm-hmm. um, in the old days when you went out by yourself when I say the old days I'm talking about the old days caves yeah thousands of years. Hey, Yes, paintings on the walls. This is um, this is even before um, you know John Cleese, and um, <laughs> a couple, just a couple of years before, yeah. <laughs> yes, and um, back then, uh, you know, you were out by yourself. You saw uh, you narrowly escaped death at the fangs of a tiger. You ran back to the cave. If you weren't able to communicate what happened, there were going to be deaths. Uh-huh. Uh, Conversely, if you found a lake that wasn't poisonous and you drank from it, um, there would be deaths if you didn't let them know about that too. Uh-huh. And uh, that would raise your stature and then there would be stories about you and the beginnings of society are born. Um, and genetically, I think – well, I don't think. I know from the research that I and other people have done mm-hmm. – are far uh, more educated than me, that uh, this is part of our genetic makeup. And when a person tells a story to another person, you know those those brain scans that show your brain lighting up when things are going on? Yeah, yeah. The fMRI yeah. scans, yeah. Yeah. If you watch the, the, the Christmas lights in someone's head when they're telling a story <laughs> and you take the same scan of a brain of someone listening to that story in real time, yeah. those patterns will eventually align. Yeah, yeah. Neurocoupling. Yes. Thank you. And <laughs> um, that means there's a very intimate process going on at the cellular level and – um, you can't underestimate the importance of story. So let's say you're trying to write something to persuade someone else to do something or not do something. Mm-hmm. Um, narrative is going to be incredibly important. And the kind of narrative you tell, how you tell it, how deep it goes, what the beginning, middle and end of it are, all will contribute mightily to whether or not your mission is accomplished. And a lot of advertising and and uh, um, 
marketing type people know this already, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the skills. Yeah, or they're doing it well. And a lot absolutely. of people, yeah, and a lot of people who do business writing that isn't necessarily designed to sell something or persuade someone with their wallet, they may have no inkling of this at all. And why should they? It's not taught in that venue. So mm. I, I really want to bridge that gap and um, coach people who do writing of any sort outside of the creative arts as well as inside yep. to show them to show them not only how they can communicate their messages more clearly and more persuasively, but that how ultimately that works in the other direction as well. And they become, believe it or not, um, more clear about themselves as people. Mm -hmm. And so once I reached that point, I thought to myself, this is something that's worth my time in a serious way. And I'm really getting a lot out of it. Well, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting that I talk to a lot of people on this show about, um, I'm constantly asking, how do you create empathy? How do you get uh, an emotional connection? But what you're also saying is, how do you create that emotional connection and use it to drive action uh, and get, get, get somebody to then do something that you want them to do, which is, if you say it fast, it sounds easy, but I, I know it's incredibly difficult to achieve. You know, a lot of, sort of seasoned marketers spend their life trying to achieve it. But, but I we, think, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say... Um, you talk about the importance of, of personal experience and drawing on personal experience. Why is that, Roger? I think there are a lot of answers to that question. And I'll just – and even among the answers that there are, there's probably a dozen that I agree with as well as many that I don't agree with. So I'll just pick one, okay? okay. Go for let's, it. Say you're, let's say you're a Buddhist, uh -huh. um, which happens to be a philosophy I find a lot of – a lot to like about. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, um, well, the, one of the essences of Buddhism is that life is suffering, which doesn't sound like a really good sales pitch for <laughs> a spiritual path. <laughs> Won't you please join us because you'll be end to end pain for the rest of your life. Uh, well, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they they have a really, you know, powerful secret product inside that that message, which is there's a way you, you, you know, there's a, there's a way to not necessarily avoid the suffering because Buddhism is full of paradoxes, but to be with the suffering in a way that doesn't hurt. And, um, if you can do that, if you can, if you, first of all, let's assume that you take that precept at its face, that in fact, life is suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that we all have something very deep and very emotional and very physical in common. Every human creature, no matter where they're from, what condition they're in physically, financially, geographically, we have this base of commonality mm -hmm. that has to do with suffering. Yeah. And if you agree with that, then there must be things that you can do and say, writing being one of those things, that can address that suffering and it's universal and it's timeless. So you're you're talking about, you know, beginning to realize the real power of that kind of communication and connection with other people um, because we have that in common to begin with and because there are ways to alleviate some of it. So, I mean, what higher mission is there than that if you really, you know, think about it? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be 
uh, grandiose. You don't have to think of it as a huge mission. It can be a small thing. If you can help one person a day uh, somehow, it was always the way that I thought about writing comedy. I used to write it and think, am I successful enough? How am I doing? Should I be further along? And I was in a coffee shop one day and there was a woman there who had one arm. My wife and I were talking about one of the movies I had written. And she leaned in and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you and eavesdrop. I don't mean to be rude, but did you were you talking about such and such? And I said, yes. She said, when I had my arm removed because of cancer, that was the only thing that kept me going. I watched it over and over again in the hospital. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right. And I didn't know what to say. Wow. I had nothing to say. I didn't. I had a big lump in my throat. And my wife took me outside when we were leaving and said, if you ever ask me if you're successful again. I'm going to hit you. Wow, I've just got goosebumps. That's insane. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's really all anyone can ask for. But I think the possibility for helping people to one extent or another and thereby helping yourself with writing and with narrative and storytelling is uh, it's ubiquitous, you know. So it's um, – I love it, you know. Of course, I was born with that love. But yeah. uh, I, hope to, I hope to inculcate it in other people. Wow, that, that's, that's, that's amazing. So, so Roger, I, you know, it's funny actually because when I talk to people who I would put in a sort of bracket of experts at story, um, it's amazing how quickly we get to um, a sort of derivative of pain and suffering and um, real, real deep sort of human emotion. You know, there's, there's definitely... There's definitely a sort of commonality from from that perspective, which I find fascinating, and I'm willing to accept that that's the sort of foundation of of real great story and narrative. But when you are coaching people from a business point of view, which you're, you're now you're now doing, mm-hmm. how do you quickly transition from that sort of masterclass conversation to? Uh, a practical framework that somebody in business can apply to their to their communications because that seems like that seems like a gulf you know How- i know i know uh, um and i think a big part of my job is to communicate to my client that that it is not a gulf it's not all i, I, I that's why before i i offer people a free session before they decide whether or not they want to sign up with me uh-huh. because they have to – if they're going to be a client, they have to have a minimum of four sessions. Okay. Um, it has to be a package and um, that's not a financial thing. That's uh, because the journey – you know, it's not ice cream. You can't tell in one lick whether or not you like the flavor. It's – you know, yeah. it's intense. Yeah, you, you can't and, do one gym session and be fit at the end of it, right? You know, that, that, oh, that kind of thing. Why didn't I say that? That much better. <laughs> Ice cream. Um, so um, I have a free session with them, and I take some of that time to explain to them that there are going to be times, especially at the beginning, that are going to sound like he, you're in session with a psychologist or we're going to write um, you know, episode 15 of Star Wars or something. And I, I realize <laughs> – I realize that you're just putting together a PowerPoint for a new uh, product, yeah. but if you, if you give me a minute, there's I'll explain that I I call myself in my business the writer coach, mm-hmm. not the writing coach, because if you want a writing coach, I can do that 
but I might not be able to do that as well as some other people for this particular project. What I can do, you know, the old parable of teaching a man to fish, uh-huh. what I try to do is help you explore yourself a little bit more so that your writing will always be better, not just now, but forever. And um, that's what I try to do with myself, you know. Yeah. And, if, <clears throat> and if you're serious enough to hire me, you're probably serious enough to be a writer. And uh, if, if, uh, if, in fact, you're a person who generally makes copies or does construction work and you just have this one project to write, I'm probably not the guy for you, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm too expensive and, uh, and I ask too much. But if you're someone who is in any sense of the word a writer or want to be a writer uh-huh. then you're going to have to you're going to have to do this work in a disorganized and lengthy way anyway if you don't do it in an organized and briefer way with me now yeah. so let's do it let's get to it you know and if they have a project that seems to be calm and passionless on the outside then it's not my job to say okay let's dial down the emotion it's my job to say why is your PowerPoint so emotionless and passionless? How are you going to convince anybody if if you don't if you if you can't even convince yourself that this is something worth getting excited about, you know? Yeah. So it's that sort of thing. So it's not really a gulf except in your mind. Yeah. And you know, which it's, is of course the worst kind of gulf of all. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is a sort of common misconception that, you know, that that gulf exists. Now you you say like okay you've got to take four sessions. Is that because there's four sort of broad headings, four sort of steps to getting somebody to the end result of a um, an entertaining or meaningful um, story led narrative rather than what no. they started with? No, no, it's because a month has four weeks, right? And I I generally suggest that we meet either virtually or in person. Once a week at least. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't really sell by the session or by the step. I sell by time. Okay. So I want you and I to have a relationship of at least a month long. And that means that if you have questions in between sessions and you want to call me or if there is an email you need to write to me yep. or a draft you have to show to me, all of that is fine. We yep. have a relationship. Uh-huh. Um, it's almost arbitrary. But less than that would be. I think a little bit too shallow, and more than that would be lovely. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but possibly over engineered. It might well. It might be scary when you you know when you. It's it's a, it's a lot of money to lay out at first. You yeah, know? no, I get that. What 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 are some of the questions that um, business leaders or managers typically ask in between sessions or or, or or whatever? You know, you must. Is there any sort of commonality that you typically see? Uh, well. There's a, there's a couple, but generally they're so specific to the – it's very difficult to get business people off the idea that we are working on something <laughs> as opposed to we are working on someone, uh-huh. i.e. you. Um, so that takes a longer relationship usually to persuade people. Part of my uh, – part of what I see my job as doing is nudging them in that direction. Uh-huh. So mostly I get questions about – well, what about page six? And I tried to do that thing you suggested, but it, it, it seems to unravel this thing over here. Those kinds of questions. But there are occasionally larger types of questions. And one that I hear a lot is, how do I know if this is good? <laughs> <laughs> is 
which is an excellent question. Yeah. I mean, they're not always going to have me around yeah. and uh, everybody who makes a movie or a television show or almost anything, they don't know what other people think of it until those other people tell them. Yeah. You know, they're, they're always positive. It's fantastic. And then they find out it's a terrible flop. <laughs> so how do I know that this thing is good? And it's, you know, it depends how do you on know? Well, you know, there are two answers to that question. The first is you don't. You know, I mean, you have your own metrics in your particular business. Uh -huh. If, you know, if it's a PowerPoint presentation and there's a particular metric that you're trying to track after it's been presented, you can look at that. You can do research. Um, if it's a movie or a TV show that ultimately gets made, you can either look at the critical or the financial response and decide that it's successful. But ultimately, and this is the really hokey part, ultimately, you have to have been successful at it before anybody else ever reads it. It has to be something that you look at and, and, and feel represents your insides mm -hmm. and in some way, in some way. Uh -huh. And if it does... It's successful. It has communicated you to the world, which is the most powerful thing as a writer that you can do. The rest of it is not your business. It is not your business. I realize that someone might fire you over it or you might never get another job, but there's no way around that anyway. There are, fan <laughs> there are fantastic movies that have flopped and there are terrible movies that have made a zillion dollars. Do, do we know why? So, you know, Phil Rosenthal, I think it was, who was the guy who created and ran a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. He said something along these lines. Write what you want because they're going to cancel you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's super. It, it is, yeah, it is sort of the, if you don't mind my saying so, because I happen to be speaking for my own people, it is sort of the show business Jewish way <laughs> yeah. of putting what just is supposed to be a very positive message, which is be yourself yeah. right from your heart. Yeah. It just adds in the reason why, because uh -huh. it's never going to work out in uh -huh. the long run anyway. I love that. So you might as well look back and say, at least they killed me. And not someone I was pretending to be. Yeah, it's 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 good advice, and I think you know. Again, I've, I've spoken to a number of story experts, and like a lot of the time, sort of the idea of sort of vulnerability comes up, and you know, the sort of perspective of you know, if you can be as be brave enough to be vulnerable, it's a sort of position of strength. And I guess if you're you're just saying tell tell your true story, and in a way, you you know. You, if you leave it all out there, then in a way you can't sort of you, you can't fail. It might be a commercial fail, but but that's that's the only sort of failure. I think you can actually feel the difference. And by the mm. way, you just said everything I need to say, and much more eloquently. <laughs> what you what you just said is exactly exactly right, as far as I'm concerned. And over time, it might take a little bit of seasoning and maturity. I think, emotionally speaking, but over time, I think you can feel it. Whether you are doing a stack or or a marketing report yeah. or a white paper or a screenplay, I think you can feel it. I think you can lean back from it at some point and say, you know, I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm going to sleep tonight. That is definitely authentic mm -hmm. and I am done with it. Yeah. And the rest is in the laps of the gods. And, 
you know, you can say that for many years, but I think you can actually get to a point where you at least a little bit actually feel it. Yeah. And it's a wonderful, I have to say, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. It means that, you know, you're no longer, you're writing, you're a human being yeah. who writes, which I think is a good goal. Absolutely. And, um, do you find that when you're working with people, certainly in the sort of corporate world from a business point of view, that, um, most of or a lot of your energy is sort of spent trying to just let them um, be themselves or just let go of a sort of corporate image or whatever and sort of be authentic and be human, you know. Is that? Yes, yes, I do. I do. It's not, you know, the way you put it to me makes it feel like it's arduous or work. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about for me is actually the most fun part. <laughs> Because there's always a lot of laughing. And the reason there's a lot of laughing, I think, is because there's a lot of embarrassment. Yeah. And the reason there's a lot of embarrassment is because there's a lot of revelation. There's yeah. a lot of vulnerability. Truth. I can't I yeah. can't say that. I can't do that. <laughs> oh, I could just imagine what my boss would say. And in fact, maybe that person is right. And in a real world sense, they can't say that. They can't do that. But they can with me. And it's such a relief. It's such a relief that, you know, I'm a certified coach as well as being whatever kind of writer I am. Mm -hmm. So I I understand what's a little bit about what's going on with the person I'm helping or trying to help besides just their writing. And I know that um, that laughter is the laughter of of shyness, of sometimes of embarrassment, of relief. It's a wonderful thing Mm -hmm. for me to experience. And um, it also helps create our relationship. And then they feel increasingly safe. And and that's another reason, by the way, why you have to have more than one session, because it takes time. And then eventually, but not not too slowly, they say, you know, I had an idea last night, and I'd like to run it by you. And they always have ideas. They always think of new and brilliant things. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't that they, there's a lack of ideas. The problem is I can't say that out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be run out. Of, I'll be run out of the human race. You know. <coughs> is that one of the sort of key moments in your sessions where you think, ah, the penny's dropping now? Yes. You mean for me? For no, for when you're witnessing one of your um, men. Mentorees is that is that a word? Mentees, <laughs> mentees. I call them, I call them clients, but I guess you're saying okay. mentee. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's go with clients. Um, <laughs> when they start saying, "Hey, I, I had an idea. You know, what do you think about this?" You know, they've obviously relaxed into that sort of relationship. Is is that the sort of one of the first signs that the penny's starting to drop? That it's okay yes. to to be honest. Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I. Yeah. I misspoke a little bit. I. I meant to say. I should have said. That is one of the signs that it's happening for them, but yeah. it's one of the signs to me. They usually don't see it. Yeah, yeah, got you. You know, and, and actually, what I've just heard you say really is um, honesty and simplicity is a very powerful differentiator, or certainly when it comes to business communications, because a lot of the time, it's there's jargon, um, it's over-engineered um, yes. language, and you know, there's a veneer of you know. Syn- synthesized sort of language that people just don't buy anymore you know i think um there's definitely a, a tolerance that um an audience that, that today's audience you know 
isn't isn't willing to to accept marketing speak you know um yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the only time that that stuff is accepted anymore is when you are deliberately trying to confuse someone, <laughs> yeah. um, and, at which point it can be a very powerful tool. If you look at what goes on in high levels of government mm. or what goes on in the military, it's very important to them at times that you not know what's going on. And so they can do that without you getting angry by throwing enough jargon at you. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. we had a we had a pre-dawn operation in which there was some collateral damage, but it was within acceptable parameters. <laughs> and what I just said was, we killed four children. Yeah, but uh, we're not going to take the blame for it. Yeah, and you know that's uh, you know in terms of that that used to go on all the time in all facets of society, and I think to some extent it still is. But I think you're right now that you bring it up. I think there is a, an increasing. There's a, I'm talking about the United States at the moment. There's a lot of anger over here, mm. and um, I think part of it is because certain factions of society have become sick and tired not of things not going their way, but of not knowing what the hell is going on. Yeah. They just want to know what's going on, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know. <laughs> do, do you think? Uh, do you think audiences are getting smart? They're getting wise to that as well. So, um, so basically, when they hear something over-engineered and more complicated than it needs, straight away a barrier goes up, and it's it's just not not believable, you know. Yeah, you know. Unfortunately, it's like any anything else. It's a two-edged sword mm-hmm. because I appreciate what they are talking about and what I often feel. And as a journalist, which is what I used to do before I was a screenwriter, Mm -hmm. it was my, you know, it was the currency of the realm. I, my whole job, uh, and by the way, I, I happen to focus on science and health science and technology, the most complicated, some of the most complicated subjects. Uh My whole job was taking what these brilliant people were trying to do, whether for good or ill, and explain it in a way that anyone could understand in five to 15 minutes. Wow. And that's and not that's easy. A, yeah. No. No, it's impossible. But you do, <laughs> you do your best every time. Uh-huh. You know, you do your best every time. And, and um, so I have a great love for that desire. But like I said, it's a two-edged sword. The other side is there are things about life that are complicated and require your patience and your active listening. And if you want me to tell you why the economy is a certain way or why things are going the way they are um, in, in, in the pharmaceutical business or something, you've got to give me your attention and your time. And I will explain it in clear terms. Mm-hmm. But we're at a point sometimes, I think, over here where if you can't tell me in four words everything I need to know about everything, <laughs> then – you are wasting my very important time. And I don't think that's true either. Make America great again is not the explanation for everything. <laughs> it certainly and isn't. Some, some things are in the gray area. Most mm-hmm. of life is. And, yeah. and um, it's living in that gray area and being able to tolerate it that makes you, I think, a better citizen. But that's not our topic. It does make you a better writer. You know, when you create characters that are nuanced – and have internal conflicts, uh-huh. you have characters that people just adore and come back to. 
Um, if you create characters that are unidimensional, they can be fun maybe for half a movie, but then very quickly everybody checks out. There's no there's no connection. There's no relatability. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've talked philosophically. We've talked from a strategic point of view. Um, what are some of the sort of practical tactical tips that you would give our audience to inject in their writing um, straight away to, that, that will elevate what they're doing or at least help them make more sense of it or simplify or make it resonate more effectively, you know, whatever. Are we, just to help me out, are we talking, would you say, about screenwriting, book writing, novel writing, or are we talking about business writing? So let's take business writing because I'm fascinated to see how you take all of your years of experience from a screenwriting and journalism point of view and point it at the world of, of business. I mean, that, that fascinates me. Well, there's a bunch of simple questions you can ask yourself regardless of what you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, And of course, you can tell me, well, I'm writing a short memo to the custodial staff. I'm not talking about that kind of writing. <laughs> if you're writing something that's intended to persuade people, yeah. to connect to people, then yeah. you can ask yourself a whole bunch of questions. What's the story of what I'm writing? What's the beginning? What's the middle? And what's the end? Mm-hmm. Who's, the he- who's the hero? Now, the hero doesn't have to be a human being. It doesn't even have to be alive. But there's a protagonist in my story. And if I don't know the answer to that question, then I'm not structuring my writing to be as compelling as it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in business and in advertising and in marketing repeat one of these truisms, which is we're about solving problems. They go so far as to say, we don't offer products, we offer solutions. <laughs> and they'll even talk to each other that way. Well, what's the solution you've come up with? Well, I have a systems solution and I have an individual solution and it just starts to grate. It doesn't mean anything <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, if there's a genuine problem that you're trying to solve, then that's fantastic. But the word problem hasn't been sufficiently examined. Everybody knows what a solution is. It's something that resolves a difficulty. But what's a problem? My problem isn't necessarily your problem. And you, there are the simple, obvious ones like, I wish I didn't have to carry my groceries from the back of my car to my house. That last few feet is the most tiring part. Well, I have a solution for that. If you've invented something to get the groceries from the car into the refrigerator, that's lovely. But other problems are more ephemeral, they're more amorphous, and they're more important. Like, I don't like my life. I don't spend enough time during the day feeling happy. Um, My relationship isn't as um, joyous as it used to be. Those kinds of things, you know... If you dared to say, I have the solution, people would laugh at you because they automatically recognize these are intrinsic to life. They will never be completely solved, but they can be helped, you know. So asking you simple, asking yourself simple questions can sometimes give yourself complicated answers, but ultimately get you to a place that's more authentic, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, you, you know what, guys? Our so-called solution is not actually solving anything, or if it is, it's not the problem we thought we were solving, and if it is, then it's not a problem anybody cares about. <laughs> and I was thinking, I've been thinking for the past two days about it, and what is it 
about buying a smartphone or um, bicycling to work that actually compels people to do it? Why are we trying to persuade people to do it? And I'll give you a hint. It's not to get more fit and it's not so that I can send emails at any time of the day or night. And you get to a place that actually is the same place screenwriters get to which is it has something to do with the human condition. It has something to do with feelings, relationships, society, connection to one another. And you end up with a company like Apple. And you say, you say to somebody, what does Apple sell? And your first answer is probably wrong. Mm. And they know what the heck they're doing because they know exactly <laughs> what they're selling. You know? um, how, how, would you thing, how would you describe what they are selling? Well, you know, there are several answers to it, but I would say that Apple is selling bliss. <laughs> yeah. When There are so many things in my life I have no control over, most things, and that's the way it ought to be uh -huh. because I'm not, I'm not the Lord. But it would be nice if every once in a while there was something I could hold in my hand that was beautiful and seemed perfect and did what I told it to do almost every single time and even when I wasn't telling it what to do might suggest what I could do something that was my friend something and you know, and you, you understand how sick this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely absolutely yeah, it, but you know you're, you're right of course you know and we're talking yeah, about we're appealing you know we're appealing to our lower selves here oh. you know but um, the truth is it's a lovely lovely loveliness that we get to be able to have for our very own and tell what to do for a short time and it connects us one to the other, not just literally through a phone call, a text or an email, but if I flash mine and you flash yours, we look at each other for a brief moment and say, we both have the membership card. We're in the same, we're in the same tribe. It's okay. We're okay right now. I'm not alone. And that's really important. Some people said that the notch on the new iPhone 10 was a real design flaw because you're, you're robbing the screen of some of its precious real estate. And there was another writer who said, that's so minor compared to what Apple is getting out of it. The silhouette of the phone is now completely changed. You know from a distance whether someone has the latest iPhone because the screen is shaped with a notch at the top. That's going to get them a lot more business than any real estate yeah. that they may have regained by not having it there. It's so smart. And I think, you know, it was the reason that they made the original headphones white. From yes. it, you know, and it's the reason they turned the Apple upside down on the laptop so it was the right way up when, you, when it was open. It's, they're, just, they're just genius at this stuff, aren't they, you know? Yeah, um, they're, yeah. I mean, I just, there's, there's no, uh, I just bow humbly yeah, in, you know, in but, awe. But you're but right. They're, able to they're, they're selling. They are selling an emotion. You know. So, yeah. you know, somebody was saying the other day to me. You know, the reason we, if we get a joke or we see something funny online and we we, we want to tell our friends straight away, it's not because we want them to see the joke. It's because we want to take ownership and responsibility for having passed on the same bliss or sort of laughter or whatever um, that we've just experienced. And give that to somebody else and be responsible for that. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It comes down to psychology at the end of the day, you know. And it's, yes, you yes. Know. 
psychology, uh, you know, um, is is one of the disciplines outside of writing that I recommend to people to look at, not because psychology knows anything more about the human condition than anyone else, mm-hmm. but it tries to define it all the time, and it's fascinating, and it helps with character. Um, and, and what you just said a moment ago touched on something, you know, an entirely separate stream of, of coaching that I do comes from my roots as a situation comedy writer, which is humor. You asked me earlier, what do executives or people sometimes say to me? And the question I mentioned was the one that came to mind. But another one is, how do I make this more funny? (laughs) How do I be more funny? You know, I don't want to be boring. And I know it's good to inject some humor into it. And they're right. And the typical solutions are usually dreadful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) because once again, it's just, you know, it's as simple and as complicated as saying, well, be funny. And well, how do I do that? Um, and there's a, there's a debate as to whether or not that's even possible to teach. But the thing that's the most to me valuable about humor is, is, is it's like a, it's like, um, it's two things. One is it's disarming. So it's not just that that person gets to take credit for passing that joke along, Mm -hmm. but that person has disarmed the person he's talking to. The shields have gone down for a moment so that the comedy can come through Mm -hmm. and you have a chance to look at each other without that glass between you. When two people are laughing at the same time, they are being authentic and they're connected. Connecting. Yeah, they're connecting and it's one of the few ways to do it. You can do it with sex. You can do it with food. Those things have consequences that humor doesn't generally have. You know, it's mm. a it's a blessed thing. Um, and then the other thing that humor does is um, it gives you some power. It's interesting because people think of laughter as a very lovely, innocuous kind of a wonderful, good feeling thing. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, I'm forcing you to laugh. Laughter is involuntary. You don't make up your mind to laugh. You just laugh. And if there were any other behavior I was forcing you to do, you might be hauling me into court or sending a memo out to the whole company telling them this person is coercing another employee. But laughter is accepted as a way of me strong-arming you. I can tell you a joke, and whether you think it's funny or not, your body tells you. And that means I now have a moment to get in there with my message, you know? Well, that's – that's, ama- that's, that's amazing. That. I've never thought of it like that, but you, you're absolutely so right because it's involuntary, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's incredible. The, the proof of the pudding is that in the olden television days, the best and most powerful comedians, people, I'm talking about people like Sid Caesar and Milton Berle, and, and uh, they were assholes when they weren't on stage. <laughs> they had these reputations for being bullies and um, – and whether it was true or not, the, the archetype is true. And it's because on stage it was acceptable because they were making you laugh. Off stage, they were yelling at you to get them their water faster or they were firing you. But it takes that kind of aggression to be that you know, to be funny. Whether what whether you're Woody Allen or Louis C. K. or I mean, think about some of the stories you hear about some stand up comedians nowadays. These are uh, aggressive people. You know, yeah. so humor is powerful. I've never thought of humor like that, but that, you know, yeah, I can see how that is a very powerful tool to, to, to wield on, on somebody. And 
we could definitely we could definitely disappear down a um a humor rabbit hole right now <laughs> i think that's i think that's part two of our conversation uh roger <laughs> <laughs> so roger before I, um i let you go because the um we're we're just about out of time i've got to ask you what's it like to uh to work with tom hanks um, it's going to be impossible to tell you because the, what I'm going to tell you is going to match up with your expectations. And <laughs> Good. I have a feeling, I, I, <laughs> I have I would a hate feeling to say that Tom Hanks is a horrible person. <laughs> you know, that would be disastrous actually. What a terrible way to end this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the same time, I hope that I can be credible and persuasive enough in what I'm telling you now. Um, <laughs> Uh, because the answer is somewhat boring. He is one of the most authentic, biggest hearted people I've ever met, which is not to say, and this is my attempt to make myself credible, which is not to say he doesn't have foibles and moods and a particular bent and a way of attacking life. He is an individual. He's unique, mm -hmm. but he is a wonderful man. He is uh, he's he's kind enough to be willing to listen to any you know anyone's idea, and he's strong enough to be able to know who he is and what he's got going and what's on the ball and say you know what no, uh, it's not personal it's not personal it's 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 you know but uh, no that's not for me it's not the way I'm going to go on this and let's move on, and the experience is fantastic. And um, I hate him. I just hate him. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> you could, I mean, I don't know. Is, is, the, is the reason for my saying that obvious? Uh, he's, he's just – he's got so much of what I want. Uh, and I'm not even talking about money and fame. No, I mean, that's – yeah. I, I can totally yeah, see yeah. that. You know? he, he enjoys his work. He's supremely talented. And by the way – like anybody else that you feel is talented in a particular discipline, he's got talents you don't even know about. Um, he, he, well, he, he has his first book of short stories out now. And I don't think – I think people would have said, oh, he's probably a pretty good writer. I don't know if they would have said he's an author. And he absolutely is an author and an excellent director and a consummate producer. He, he could be successful at any one of those things if he wanted to. Hence the hatred. Yeah, it's really annoying, isn't it? Yeah, it's really very annoying. It's annoying, very but he's, you know, he he comes across on screen as uh, a very authentic person, and it's you know, I think if you had have described him as anything other than what you've just described, and that it'd be, I think a lot of people would be disappointed. He's just one of those people; it's impossible not to like, but you're kind of jealous of at the same time. I can imagine. <laughs> But you know you yeah, get it's... you get to work with him though, uh, Roger. That's that's got to be um, that's got to be quite fulfilling. I would have thought. Yes, at this point, we've worked on several projects together, and I think I'm not out of line in saying that we've crossed over from being colleagues to friends. And I consider myself to be much much richer for it because if he's your friend, you have an ally. Uh, not in the business. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can just call the man up and say, can we talk? <laughs> and uh, he welcomes life. He's never, never outgrown life. And uh, believe me, I'm not the, 
you know, I don't always work at the highest levels, but I have been in entertainment long enough to know that that is not the case with a lot of very famous, powerful people. Yeah. Uh, even the ones who, you know, um, even the ones who aren't necessarily mean spirited, they still don't necessarily, uh, they're not connected to the rest of us anymore. Mm. And he very, he very much is. If you spoke to him for five minutes, um, after minute two, you'd forget who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And just be talking to a you know a really fun guy. I'm sorry I went on so long about Tom Hanks, but I love him. <laughs> Listen, I, you know I'm sure uh, the entire audience is uh, is grateful for that because I mean who doesn't <laughs> love who doesn't love Tom Hanks? That's that that that's awesome. But let's get back to you for a second, just before we go, um, Roger. Tell us tell us where people can find out a little bit more about you, um, and then is there anything else you want to draw our audience's attention to or leave us with? Oh, thank you so much. Um, uh, the website is probably the best place. It's kind of command central. So um, it's writercoach.net, spelled exactly as it sounds, writercoach.net. And there you'll find um, the opportunity to download some free uh, printed advice, mm-hmm. um, uh, character builder forms and you know ways that I try to create more authentic characters in my writing. Um, there's a newsletter you can subscribe to, and of course you can look at my services. Um, and there's also links to some of the online courses I've taught for various platforms. There's lynda.com and LinkedIn Learning and Stage 32 and um, the Writer Store, and um, you can sample those or take them, you know, if you wish. And um, if you'd like to know more about what I've written, uh, people probably are familiar with the Internet Movie Database, which is imdb.com. And I try to keep that listing up to date because rather than go to a million different sources, I like just to have one that everyone knows is you know, up to date and accurate. Yep. Um, and I would love to hear from anybody who wants to write me having heard this, even if they're not necessarily interested in the next five minutes and doing work with me, it's just great to hear from people who love writing and want to be better writers. Wow. Fantastic. Well, there's just so much value on offer there. Um, and you know, who wouldn't want to be in contact with, um, the guy who wrote Shrek. I just, I start, <laughs> you know, I just think that's fine. I mean, it's, and I know you've done so much more than that uh, as well, Roger, but it's just, for me, that is just awesome. Um, you know, and you've also got Tom Hanks as a mate, so you've got to be a pretty cool guy as well. So that's. <laughs> I've, I've got a great big smile on my face. Believe me, nothing you're saying is rubbing me the wrong way. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I really appreciate your questions, which I found to be, uh, um, you know, very insightful. I really, it's really been fun. Good. Well, I've really enjoyed, um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I know the audience will as well. Uh, so, so thanks so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Not at all. So there you go, guys. That's it for another week. Join me next time for more pearls of story-based wisdom from another storytelling expert. But that's it from me, Brian Adams. Until next week.